On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw, out some, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. It's uh, been my experience that wedding attendance peaks at two times in your life. The first peak starts when your own friend group starts to get married, and the second peak starts when your friend's children begin to get married. This is the peak that Patty and I are currently in. And now that our children are old enough, they have recently also begun to accompany us to some of these weddings. At the first wedding they were invited to, we had a mini family crisis as we got ready. One of our kids did not understand that you need to wash before you attend a wedding. One of our kids did not understand that you can't wear basketball shorts to a wedding. One of our kids did not understand that you need to brush your hair to go to a wedding. While Patty and I were showering and shaving, picking out shirts and ties, putting on makeup, we were also laying down the law and getting serious adolescent pushback at our demands that this one child shower and groom and dress up. By the time we got to the wedding, we might have looked pretty good on the outside as a family, but we were all dirty and disgusting and seething messes on the inside. At least we were ceremonially clean to attend this wedding. Today we're looking at Jesus' very first uh, miracle in the book of John, and it's, it's an odd miracle. No one is raised from the dead in this miracle. No one walks on water. No one is healed. There's just this awkward moment where the alcohol runs out and Jesus steps in and turns some nearby water into wine. And yet John says in verse 11 of this miracle, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Water into wine. Why would John begin his account of Jesus' ministry with this description of a miracle. How does this reveal Jesus's glory? Why does this miracle have such an effect on John and the other disciples? 
Miracles work as signposts and foretastes. We've said that at North Point many times. They are signposts to Jesus and foretastes of the coming kingdom. And this makes sense of the healing ministries. But water into wine at a wedding? How does this reveal the glory of Christ? Let's start by looking at the importance of this word glory. This uh, summary verse in 2.11 of this passage uh, is tapping back to something at the beginning of the Gospel of John. It's tapping back, in fact, to verse 114, which is almost a summary verse for what John is trying to communicate through his whole Gospel. Let me read that to you. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the word glory gets thrown around in churches all the time. What does it really mean? The word glory means weightiness, significance, something majestic, something uh, of incredible uh, presence. And the disciples saw something in this story, in this sign that happened at this wedding feast, and they were they moved from believing, from not from some sort of belief or some sort of calling as disciples into a state of belief. They see the glory and they believed, is what we see in verse 211 here. Now that's a strange thing to say because they've been called as disciples. If you go back to the very preceding verses in chapter one. In verses 40 to 50, we see that Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip are already called. In some sense, they believe. They see him as a rabbi. They're following him. But what does it mean that they believed? I think they're tapping into something here that's similar to what we see in Mark 9 after the transfiguration, where Jesus comes down from the mountain and a man uh, comes to Jesus and says, my, my son is uh, writhing, he's, he's struggling, he's... And, Jesus' uh, disciples can't heal him, and the man says, can you, can, you help this? can you help my son? And Jesus says, uh, can? Any, if you believe, anything is possible. And the man says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And there's a sense in which we all believe, and we all need to believe more. We need to see the glory of God more fully, more completely. We need to understand somehow from this story, from this miracle, the weightiness, the significance, uh, the, the presence of Christ that's manifest in this passage in a way that transforms our belief, that takes our belief, that takes our unbelief. I believe, help me in my unbelief, takes it to the next level of belief. So we're going to see two places in here where we find glory. The first is the glory of the cross-made wedding. The glory of the cross-made wedding in verses 1 to 5, and then in verses 6 to 20, the glory of the final washing. So the glory of the cross-made wedding and the glory of the final washing. Now, at the time of Jesus, weddings were the event in the community, perhaps weddings and funerals. No Netflix, no... Uh, uh, sporting uh, uh, activities for kids that were organized. The, the wedding and the funeral outside the life of the temple were the key social events of the time. They often lasted up to a week, 
And the groom was the host. The groom was the one who was responsible for making sure that the wedding feast was a social success. Now, the groom often hired a master of ceremonies, referred here to you as the master of the banquet, but it was ultimately responsibility of the host, the groom. And if something went wrong, it was a social disaster for the groom. And a mistake like this, running out of wine after just a few days before the party was over, would be one of those things that if they had YouTube, would have been all over YouTube at the time. This was YouTube-like disaster, social uh, failure. The party's over. It's the groom's problem, the party's over, everything looks like it's spiraling out of control. Now Mary sees this and she tells Jesus the problem. And you see that in verse three, they've got no wine. And Jesus knows what that means. Jesus understands the implication of that. He knows that the groom at this wedding is gonna be shamed and embarrassed. It seems like the master of the banquet doesn't realize that yet. But Jesus' response is really weird, isn't it? He looks at Mary and he basically, it seems like when you first read that passage, he turns to her and he says, look, Mary, I'm not working today. Uh, and it's interesting, that phrase which we see, that response uh, from Jesus, and let me read it out. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that phrase, what's this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. There's another uh, phrase in Greek uh, that sounds just like that, that's almost parallel to that. In the English, it doesn't come across as strongly, but that is actually in uh, Matthew, in the account of the demons that are cast out and thrown into the pig. And I'm just gonna read those verses to you because uh, in Matthew 8, uh, verses 29, And when Jesus came to the other side to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before this time? Now that's almost a direct parallel to what Jesus said. What's this got to do with me? It's not yet my time important for us to realize then that that expression that first of all what's this got to do with me he's really saying i'm not the groom this is not my problem i am not the groom this is not my problem and then he goes on to say and it's not my time yet now what's he talking about there well he's actually looking forward in a sense to when he is the groom and the journey he needs to go on to become the groom you see that expression there and we see it in the uh we see it in the NIV uh, as it's pr uh, pretty well translated directly. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour, my hour. That phrase, my hour, is used again uh, a couple more times in the book of John. First of all, in John uh, 7, verse 30. And in that case, uh, Jesus is actually... Uh, uh, claiming to be God in a sense, preaching in the synagogue, and they're rising up and they want to, uh, there's, a, there's a movement that wants to arrest him, that wants to uh, have him put to death. And this is the response that we get from that, uh, from that passage. 
So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then again in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 20, uh, a similar thing is happening. He's claiming to be God and they're wanting to have him arrested and killed. And uh, Jesus answered them, you need neither me nor my father. At this point, he said, you need two witnesses in the Old Testament to testify to something. But I am enough. I am God uh, myself. And so I testify. God testifies to me and I testify to the father. You know, and says, you know neither me nor the father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasure as he taught at the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So this hour is pointing to the cross. Uh, and then we see uh, in uh, verses, um, uh, in verse 12, when we go to, sorry, chapter 12, in verses 23 and 24, this is just after the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And at this point, uh, they again come to him uh, but this time he tells uh, a story. Let me read that, those verses to you. John uh, chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, right after the triumphal entrance. And Jesus answered him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See that glorified, to be made significant, something about the cross here, the cross. The God, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls on the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the hour of his death is coming and something about his death is going to produce much fruit. You see, at this point, he's pointing ahead to his own wedding. He's saying that in this wedding, I am not the groom, but my hour is coming when I am going to die and I am going to be raised again, and I'm looking forward to being the groom. And we see that wedding, of course, in Revelation chapter 9, 19, verses 6 and 7. And we're going to put all this together in a minute, but it's important that we work through this. You're going to see the word glory coming out again, weightiness, significance. Uh, chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of the great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like the sound of the mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, the significance, the weight, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now see here what's going on. Jesus is saying, I'm not the groom at this wedding. And I need to go through the hour of my death before I can become the groom. And I need to go through the hour of the death, uh, the hour of my death, and be resurrected before I can become the groom, because I need to die to make my church, my bride, ready for me. And so then, of course, he goes on and solves the problem as a sign to his disciples and to us who read the text now that something big is going on here, something significant is going on here. The wedding feast of Cana is a little bit like pre-wedding photos. I don't know if at your wedding, you a lot of times now the photos are taken before the wedding. Sometimes in some cultures, particularly in Asia, they'll actually take them 
weeks before the wedding when the light is right at the right location. They'll dress up in the wedding dress and the groom will get together and they'll take all the photos to make it look like it was perfect. So then it doesn't matter if on the wedding day it's raining or something goes wrong, they have the photos which make it look like they wanted it to look. And in a sense, that's what is happening here. This is a snapshot, a preview of the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a sign of what is to come, where Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. The glory of the cross-made wedding. That is the first piece of significance that we're supposed to see in this text uh, as we read through the book of John. Uh, and I'm going to indulge myself a little bit here before we move on to the second glory, which is the glory of the final washing. Because there is a, uh, there's a verse in here, verse 5, which I, uh, I think is, is worth looking at simply because uh, I've heard it described as the best piece, the best sermon on life living that's ever been given. It's a sermon by Mary talking to the servants, uh, telling them how to respond to Jesus to solve the problem that's going on before them. So let me read that in verse 4. Oh, sorry, in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Very short sermon, but worth remembering. When things start falling apart around you, when your life seems to be collapsing, when nothing seems to be going as it is, remember Mary's sermon in the midst of the wedding feast of pain. Do whatever he tells you, and things will go okay. Now, that's not the main point of the sermon, not the main point of this text, but it's worth remembering Mary's sermon here. All right, moving on to the second glory that we find in this text, in verses 6 to 20, the glory of the final washing. Now, the, uh, the reference here is to stone jars that are used to hold the water for ceremonial washing. And the significance of stone, typically uh, water jugs were made of clay or mud that had been dried, and that, of course, polluted the water in the sense that it got cloudy or dirty. It didn't look as good. It was still clean enough to use for washing and general things. But because ceremonial clean, cleaning was so important as part of the Jewish uh, religious tradition to, to present yourself uh, ceremonially clean before God, recognizing that you weren't clean on the inside, but at least you needed to be clean and somehow God was going to solve that, they would create... The, they created these large stone vessels to hold water, to keep the water looking clean and pure. And if you work out the math here, you'll see that the water that's being described here, there are six jars of 20 to 30 gallons each, which works out to somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons, which is interesting. because they're, And they're also empty. Now, those jars were probably used on a regular basis for ceremonial cleaning when you uh, happen to come back perhaps from touching someone that you shouldn't have touched or doing an activity that made you ceremonially unclean or as preparation for going to temple worship. They were ways of becoming ceremonially clean. But there's a Jewish tradition that happens at a wedding uh, feast called a mech, well, it's actually the washing of the bride that happens in a, in a container or a, or a space which is set aside, which is called a, the space itself is the mechveh and it's full of ceremonially clean water where the bride is washed. And the, there's very clear instructions as to how much water should be put into, how much ceremonially clean water needs to be put into a mechveh. It's actually calculated, believe it or not, 
by the amount of water it takes in that space to cover a certain number of eggs. But uh, it works out to be roughly 150 gallons of ceremonially clean water, which is exactly the amount of water if you average out between 120 and 180. So there's this interesting, and we don't know that that water was being used to ceremonially cleanse the bride. We don't know that for sure. It could have just been water that was there to be ceremonially cleansed and used for the body of Christ, about the body who went to the synagogue and to, to be part of the Jewish ritual, but they were empty. And it's interesting they're empty and it's just the right amount. And so whether it was temple clean, body of believers, or whether it was wedding clean, bride, the parallel is probably intentional. The ambiguity is probably meant to be there. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ. But then we're asked the question, okay, so there's this ceremonial cleansing that comes here, but who washes with wine? Who washes with wine? And not just any old wine, not three-buck Trader Joe's wine, but good wine. Now, I did a little bit of math here myself because I, I looked at how much does a bottle of good wine cost. I don't even know what good means. But apparently the average bottle of good wine costs about $32.42. So give or take, this 150 gallons of wine was worth about $20,000. $20,000. Now, okay, if I'm going to wash in wine, which seems odd to start with, I'm certainly not washing in, in $20,000 worth of wine. What is going on here? Of course, the wine is worth a lot more, or at least what it's a sign of, than $20,000. This wine is the sign of the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is what prepares his bride for the church. Jesus' blood is washes. It's clear. And of course, we know this because this is what we do every time we do communion. So the glory here that we see is the glory of the new covenant, the breaking in of the new covenant. This is what we're doing in this series. We're looking at this breaking in of the light of the kingdom of God, this, this new ministry of Christ. This first miracle is the breaking in of the new covenant, the, the, the explanation of the new covenant through this miracle. The Old Testament ceremonial law pointed forward to this point. You washed yourself clean. You made yourself ready. You dressed up, uh, in a sense, to be ready to look the part, not because you really thought you were okay, but because you knew somehow, somewhere in the future, this uh, dressing up, this washing, this ceremonial cleansing was going to be made complete, was going to be fulfilled, and it's fulfilled in the New Covenant. And that's why we don't do that anymore. See, the blood of Christ comes. It stops the need for the ceremonial law. It fulfills that law. And we are washed in the blood of Christ. This is the, new, this is the cup of the new covenant. Sealed with my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It is Christ's blood that is the significance, the meaning of this sign of the wedding feast of Cana. That's not the only piece of glory we see here. Look at verses 9 and 10. Let's talk about the significance, in a sense, of that blood at the wedding feast. When the master of the feast tasted the water, which was now wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom 
And he said to the, everyone else serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept this good wine, this $20,000 wine. You have kept this good wine until now. And then Jesus goes, uh, John goes straight on to talking about that this was one of the signs. And so it's important to us, there's the glory of the best for last. And it's the same for us. When we understand that the glory of the cross-made wedding is what this is really a sign of, and the glory of the final washing, which this is really a sign of, it also looks forward to that wedding feast of the Lamb and the full consummation of the kingdom of God, and we realize that the best is saved for our last for us too. There's no nastiness, there's no aftertaste. All the spoils of this world are kicked out. No sin, no death, no sadness, no mourning. We are perfectly clean with Jesus as our bridegroom. This sign points us to our bigger, uh, more glorious, more weighty story than what we often discover in our own lives. The pieces that we get caught up with and trapped. Jen listed through some of the things that can weigh us down. The injustice that we don't know how to address. The mess that our political system may seem to be. The illness, the sickness, uh, the things that plague us with the, the coronavirus. We said the best is yet to come. The story is bigger than the context I find myself in. I believe, help me in my unbelief, let me look to the weightiness of the glory of the cross-made wedding, the glory of the final washing, the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the best for last. Now, the wedding feast of Cana then is a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the beginning of that time when we will live in person with Christ among us, living in a world where ugliness has been evicted. Disease, prejudice, mental illness, death, suffering, grief, all expelled. And we read about this earlier in chapter 9, but it's restated again in the very last book of Revelation, the very last chapter of Revelation, chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, we are the bride of Christ made ready. We are not wearing jeans or basketball shorts. We are beautifully dressed for Christ. We are clean on the outside and on the inside. We are fit in this picture to live in the holy city. We have showered and we have brushed our hair. We are holy in this picture, not defiled. We are whole. We are not bruised and broken. John begins his gospel with this miracle because he wants us to know that the kingdom is breaking in, that the old way of getting clean with ceremonial washing is over. But he wants us to know something else too. You see, wedding and bride communicate more than just a change of state, something more than being permanently washed clean, something more than living in a new Jerusalem where there's no evil, no sickness, no death, and no grief. Brides and weddings don't make good transactional metaphors. Washing and cleansing do. Even Mary's sermon, do what he tells you and he'll solve your problem, does. But grooms and brides and weddings are about commitment 
and about love. Christ loves, cherishes, and delights in us as his church. Christ loves us, the church, enough to die for us. Sometimes it's hard to allow ourselves to be loved like this. The people who should love us well, our parents, our spouses, didn't or don't do a perfect job. They didn't or they don't make it safe to run to their arms. And I don't mean safe in the sense that they can protect us from the world and its brokenness. I mean safe in the sense that they would never reject us, never resent us, never condemn us. And it's even harder to run to them when we as children or spouses do things that are deserving of rejection or resentment or condemnation. Perfect love drives out fear. We are his bride. We are loved, we are cherished, we are delighted in, and we are died for. It is safe to run to his arms. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, this is a sign of something very weighty, very significant. Very important for us to be able to see as we faithfully go about the business of doing what you tell us to do. Father, we need to be washed clean. We, we need to be prepared for you to be fit to live with you in that holy city. And Father, we know it's your son's work. It was that hour, that death and resurrection on the cross. Help us to believe. Help us in our unbelief to see the weightiness of this, the glory of this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.